If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to be reading out of Matthew 15. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 20. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard the saying? He answered them, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind leave the blind, both will fall into the pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, happy MLK weekend. We are in Matthew 15, as you saw, and I was thinking this week, and you'll see why I was thinking this in a minute. When Angela and I were newly married, we had just moved to Pisa, Italy, and we were looking for a church. And back then, uh, in the Protestant, uh, under the Protestant umbrella, pretty much all you were going to find in our area of Italy uh, was some form of Pentecostalism. So we were visiting churches, and one Sunday we went to this one church. It ended up feeling more like an SNL skit to me than an, a church worship service. Not that all Pentecostals are like that. That's a story for another time. But um, we were walking in and we noticed that all the women were on one side and all the men were on the other side and the women were wearing head coverings. And Angela was quickly texting one of her friends and said, do I need a head covering to, be, to, to enter this church? And her friend said, no, 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 just make sure you don't wear pants or jeans. Guess what sweetie was wearing? <laughs> And, and, the, and my, my best guess is that out of a desire to manifest modesty, this church had created these other rules to make sure that their people were accomplishing it. Some of you, maybe you grew up in a different tradition, maybe a tradition that prohibited all use of alcohol. Ixne on the inway, if my pig Latin is up to date. And, and that thinking might have come from uh, a desire that... that the people not give themselves to drunkenness, which is a sin. So, well, if, if we can go ahead and say all alcohol is a sin, then that will effectively prevent our people from moving towards drunkenness. Or one more, 
Uh, I know some of you uh, grew up in a strain of Christianity, maybe where you went on a youth retreat. My head's in youth retreat. I've got two boys coming back now from it. And I've been a part of youth retreats going up where because of a desire that our young people ingest good Christian material, we break all our CDs that are secular, you know, and and CDs kids are what we used to listen to music on. It wasn't in the cloud. We, we held our music. We went and bought our music, which is weird to explain to my kids. That's where I used to buy music. You're like, what do you mean buy, go and buy music? Anyway, anything that was secular, rock, alternative, whatever it was, we, we you know, collectively would break them up. Not, not in the Bible, but trying, we're adding rules to try to accomplish, better accomplish what the Bible tells us to do. So what do these three stories have in common? In an effort to build up one aspect of the faith, new rules are created that aren't necessarily in the Bible, but often these added new rules come at the expense of clear teachings of the Bible. It may just be Christian charity. It might be something more significant. And it also creates an environment because we're going by these man-made added rules where it's just ripe for self-righteousness. It's just ripe for us to begin to compare. I'm doing these rules. Are, are you doing those rules? I'm doing better than you. And then we become prideful, condescending people and ultimately really isolate ourselves from other people. So take these stories to their logical extreme. And that's what's going on here in Matthew 15. And Matthew 15 really is a beautiful example of what God wants for his people. It's a beautiful example uh, by contrasting man-made rules or man-made religion with pure Christianity. Or to use the words in the text, clean hands religion versus versus pure heart Christianity. So that's how I want to walk through this passage just by looking at it under those two headings. So first, clean hands religion. So it'd probably be helpful to give a little context We are still in the aftermath of the feeding of the 5,000, and if you've been with us for a few weeks, you remember that when the crowd was still there, Jesus dismissed his disciples, told them to to row or sail, I guess, I don't know which one would be more appropriate, to go on a boat to this other shore on the other side, and Jesus said, I'll meet you. And of course, he did, just not the way that they expected. He walked out on top of the water to the middle of the lake and met them. That's what we looked at last week. And now in this passage, they are on that far shore. And Jesus is just looking for rest after all that he had done. And the crowd shows up again. The crowd finds them. The crowd wants him to perform more miracles. But it's not just the same crowd now. There's another group that has come and joined them, this group of of Pharisees and scribes. And Matthew tells us they came from Jerusalem. So this, this is a different group. It feels to me like a delegation that has come from Jerusalem. I imagine that somebody in this crowd had sent word back to Jerusalem to the religious leaders telling them Jesus is doing a lot of things over here. He's gaining a lot of traction and he's directly contradicting what it is you religious leaders are teaching. So this delegation of sorts comes to Jesus And they immediately rebuke him. And they do so in verse 2 by saying, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And I can remember as a new Christian reading this and thinking, man, these Pharisees, they were serious about germs. But that isn't at all what is going on. If you remember back in Exodus, God gave through Moses uh, 
the law as a whole. And, and in there were some requirements for those priests who were overseeing certain holy ceremonies that they should cleanse themselves. They should wash themselves so that they would be clean, not unclean, when they oversee these specific uh, ceremonies. But in Jesus' day, the religious leaders had added a bunch of rules to the laws that had been given to his people through Moses. So an, uh, one example you may be aware of is the Sabbath. We're commanded to keep the Sabbath, the day of rest. And so the, the Pharisees and religious leaders would think, well, what, what does that mean? How do we know we're resting? How do we know we're not working? So they would come up with you know, all these other rules, all these other laws. You can only take this many steps. You can only get this far from your house. There was one quirky rule that, that said that if you move clothes from one side of your house to the other house, side of the house on Sabbath, that's work. But if you wear them from one side to the other, that's not work. And so people would take advantage of that law. So in this passage, what's happening is this priestly ceremonial washing had been extended to every meal for all types of people just to be really careful, really careful that we're not inadvertently ingesting something unclean. That we don't know if we touched a Gentile, we don't know if we touched some unclean food, or we don't know if we've done something else to make us unclean. So just to be super careful, we are going to wash ceremonially, ceremonially before, every, before every meal. So how did this come about? Like, why, why are the religious leaders doing this? The most charitable explanation I could give would go back when Israel had just gotten out of their exile. They're back in the promised land. And of course, the religious leaders, they, they don't want that to happen again. They had been exiled because of their disobedience to God. So let's create all these other rules to make sure that we don't commit this same sin again, and that God doesn't exile us again. But generations later, here we are in Jesus's day, and something else is going on. In Jesus's day, these extra laws, they weren't, they were functionally used as their Savior. They were ways of making the law manageable, of, of convincing them, I've accomplished the things, the requirements in the Mosaic law. And because they worked so hard to make sure that they felt like they had accomplished the, 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 the Mosaic law, in that environment, the people, who, the Pharisees and scribes in our situation, they become prideful. They become condescending. They look down on anyone who's not doing the same works that they are, which is why they see Jesus and his disciples not washing before the meal, and they conclude this can't possibly be a religious leader. He does not obey the traditions of the father, fathers. So, after saying that, Jesus absolutely lays into them. You know, there are certain places we get meek and mild Jesus, certain people we get turning over tables Jesus. This is kind of more of the turning over, over tables side of Jesus. He doesn't make an excuse for the disciples. He doesn't kind of nicely teach, well, let me tell you, you've misunderstood the, the washings. This is what's going on. He goes for the jugular with the most esteemed leaders, religious leaders of that day. And he does this in verse 3 by saying, and why do you break the commandment of God just for the sake of your tradition? 
So he's saying, your tradition that I'm not obeying is causing you not to accomplish the law, but actually you're causing people to break the law by obeying this tradition. And in verses 4 through 7, he kind of fleshes out exactly how they're doing it. And he does it under the banner of the fifth commandment. What's the fifth commandment? Honor your father and your mother. And so we primarily think of this commandment as it pertains to younger children in the house. And it does apply that way. But it, it also extends to caring for older parents who need care late in, in their life. And especially so in, in an agrarian environment or agrarian, agrarian environment like this, where they didn't have access to modern science, they didn't have access to Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. So they had this tradition there called Corbin. And Corbin is specifically mentioned in Mark's account of this story. And Corbin was a tradition where if your parent came to you and needed some sort of assistance, financial assistance in their older age, you could say Corbin which meant, well, the money that I would love to give you, it's actually already dedicated to God, and so it's unavailable. And so the tradition of the fathers was causing them to break the fifth commandment. And then, starting in verse 7, Jesus says to these religious leaders in front of the whole crowd, you hypocrites, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So this is why I'm calling it clean hands religion. They are jumping through all their man-made religious hoops and completely missing God. They're like whitewashed tombs in Jesus' words. They look clean on the outside, but they are completely dead on the inside. And we do the exact same thing today. Maybe in different ways. Maybe it's not around hand washing, but I can remember in my campus ministry days meeting many a college student who felt like because they go to church every now and then, they don't drink, they don't sleep around, that they are fundamentally good with God. They're looking to those things that they do or don't do as their justification of why they're good with God. And you can often spot that kind of a student because they're the ones that are gossiping about the other people who don't go to church and do drink and aren't, are doing things with the other genders that they shouldn't be doing. And if we look to those things to justify ourselves, that then is a logical conclusion because we're going to be proud of what we want, what we're doing, and we're going to become prideful in it. Then we're going to be condescending toward other people, look down at them if they're not doing the same things that we feel like are justifying ourselves. And then, as I said in the very beginning, the result is that we become a very isolated person. We don't have a lot of life-giving friendships in our life. And this isn't just a problem for unbelievers. Christians, me included, I can think of specific times in my walk with Jesus where I easily slipped right back into the same kind of pharisaical attitude because I wanted to feel better about my spiritual life. I wanted to feel like I'm doing as good or better than than the people around me. And I don't think I'm the only one who slips into this test, this slips into that pit. Here is a test. When it comes to secondary and tertiary issues in the faith, another way to say often those issues are issues of application of wisdom. 
wisdom issues, conscience issues, things like how we school our kids, how we dress, how we vote, whether we drink or not. If you feel like on those kinds of application of wisdom issues that you're doing it God's way and everybody else has it wrong, we could very well be slipping into the same pit as the Pharisees are falling into. And it makes me nervous when anybody says on these application of wisdom issues that this is God's way. And I did some Googling this week and I found God's way for voting, God's way for parenting, and God's way for weight loss. God's got a lot of opinions. And, and some of these things I didn't disagree with. I didn't. But when you attach God's way to a secondary, tertiary application of wisdom issue, even if all our intentions are good, we are beginning to walk down this path that the Pharisees are on. I remember Ligon Duncan once saying, wherever it is here, I got way ahead of myself, Um, the road to destruction is paved with good intentions. Another similarity that we have in our culture to, to this one is that these Israelites, they were living in a culture that was rapidly changing around them. So they had been in Roman occupation now for generations, and the people and each successive generation were beginning to embrace Roman ethics, Roman practices, and even in some cases, Roman beliefs. So it was the belief of the religious leaders that these, these extra works, these extra laws that we're creating, it's helping buffer us and protect us from the invasion of this Roman culture who's coming into, into our promised land. It's going to protect these rules. They're going to protect the, the next generation. Does that sound familiar? Living as God's people in a rapidly changing culture and trying to figure out how we protect ourselves and the next generation. But in this, case, in this context, in Israel, these rules that were intended to help protect them and their younger generations actually ended up doing more harm than good. In our study of American de-churching that many of you know we've been working on, we saw, we saw a few themes, but one particular theme was, in, uh, was with people who left the church right around the same time they left their parents' home. And one of the consistent things that we would hear in our study is that they would say, instead of equipping me to live in the world, they primarily tried to protect me from the world, and as a result, they did not know how to maintain their faith once they were out in the world. So... And I think we can see this in the text, but apply it to ourselves, that our our goal isn't to teach our kids how to add different rules to the word to protect them. Our goal is to equip them to be sent out into the world and be faithful and fruitful Christians for the rest of their life. So at this point in the passage, Jesus looks to the whole crowd. Pharisees and scribes are still there. And in, in the second half of verse 10, Jesus says, hear and understand It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. And so he's saying to this whole crowd in front of the Pharisees and the scribes that washing of your hands is unnecessary. It it doesn't matter if your hand is technically clean or unclean in you and just something's unclean because that's going to be expelled anyway. It goes right through you. What comes out of our mouths shows that our hearts are already defiled. 
The problem is already internal. It's not that something from outside might creep in. The problem is already inside each one of us. So clean hands religion, it deals with the outside, but not the heart. And that is exactly what Jesus is coming to confront in his whole ministry, but in this passage here. And I love after the interaction, the disciples come to Jesus and they kind of pull him aside, it feels like, and say, hey, do you know that what you just said, it really offended the Pharisees? Like the disciples were going to help Jesus read the room. And this is where Jesus explains the gravity and the severity of a clean hands religion. This is why Jesus is being so harsh. It doesn't just lead to a miserable, isolated, prideful life. It leads to eternal destruction. Verse 13. Jesus explained to the disciples, every plant that my heavenly Father has planted will be rooted up, has not planted, excuse me, will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. So this is, this is of course, referencing Matthew 13, his parable of the weeds and the wheat. You can go back and listen to it if you want. But what Jesus is saying in that parable is not everyone who looks like they're in the kingdom really is. Not everybody who looks like they belong in the people of God is actually put there by God. Some, if you, to use the, the planting weeds metaphor, some are actually planted by Satan. And there will be a day, even though you can't see the difference very well right there, now, there will be a day when God will come and pull those plants up by their roots and they will be thrown into the fire. He says they're like blind guides because if you're blind, metaphorically, spiritually, as Jesus is saying, they are going to walk and fall off a cliff into the pit where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so will everyone who follows them. This is serious. He wants them to understand why it is that he would use such strong words and maybe offend the religious leaders of that day because they were not leading these people toward God. They were leading them in exactly the opposite direction. And the whole problem I love is encapsulated, the problem here is beautifully encapsulated in Jesus' story in Luke 18. You may remember this, starting in verse 10. Jesus says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other tax collector. It's just funny how closely that resembles a lot of modern jokes. Sorry, just popped from my head. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That's a great picture of the Pharisee, both in our passage and in his story, of what it looks like to embrace a clean hands religion, where we're just mainly trying to clean up the outside of our lives, what's seen, and we don't ever really deal with our heart. So if that's clean hands religion, then what is a pure heart Christianity? Verse 17 through 20. 
Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. It's our fundamental problem. It's a heart problem. It's a heart issue. All of our bad decisions... They're not a result of unclean hands and ingesting something that might be unclean, but a problem of an unclean heart, a defiled heart that all of us have. That is the natural state of everyone. And Jesus didn't come just to clean us up on the outside. He came to give us a new heart, something that man-made religion of any stripe cannot ever do. From the heart, Jesus says, that's where our selfish and sinful decisions come from. And he names them. Our anger, our lust, our greed, our pride, our slander, substance abuse, whatever you want to say, those decisions come from a problem inside each and every one of us. A problem that none of these Pharisees is addressing appropriately. These Pharisees, they fundamentally misunderstand the role of law that they're trying to accomplish. The law isn't given to make us clean, but to show us that at our core, we are unclean. We should see the law and understand that we have a real holiness problem. That's the role of the law. It isn't made to be manageable. It's meant to lead us to the realization that we are unholy and drive us to God to ask for him for the only thing that we, the only option we have left, forgiveness to ask him to forgiveness and our rebellion and our unholiness and for him to do something that no man-made religion can ever do, to take a hearts of stone and give us a heart of flesh, to take this external, unmanageable, unattainable law of God and make it an internal longing inside our heart, which is exactly what Jesus is offering to do, exactly what he came to do in the new covenant. It's been a few years since I've told this story, and it's so applicable that I'm willing to say it again, and then maybe retire it for a while. So many of you know, uh, I went to FSU, and I was a frat dude living the frat life when God saved me. And there was one guy in our fraternity who was known as the Christian guy. I see those air quotes there. I mean, he didn't drink, he didn't sleep around, he went to church, and he wanted all of us to know that. And then God saved me. God had, I, I, yeah, I get ahead of myself. But everything about me began to to change. The things I was doing I didn't want to do anymore, the the, the things that I had no desire to do, like reading the Bible and going to church, I all of a sudden really wanted to do these things, and so... It was just so weird that Jim was not doing these things and doing these things that one day at our chapter meeting, the weekly fraternity meeting, I I stood up and I just said, here's the deal. I've become a Christian (laughs) and I'm trying to figure out what exactly that even looks like and means, but that's the change that you see. And some people didn't know how to respond. Some people made fun of me and some people joined me. But a few weeks after that, this Christian in the fraternity, he walked up to me and he said, You have gotten in one minute what I have worked for years to have, and I hate you for it. I mean, this this is the Pharisee. He was the Pharisee working so hard 
to earn something that no human can earn, and it was corrupting his soul. It was corrupting his heart. I, on the other hand, I saw the futility of my works. <laughs> now, I wasn't looking to be justified through religious acts. I was looking for my justification through worldly successes. So I was president of the fraternity, president of the honor society, president of the senior class. I started a successful, uh, what do you call it, political party there. I sat on the international board for my fraternity. I was a part of the elite secret society at FSU. And I remember my senior year looking at my resume and it wouldn't make me happy. I, I did not find the satisfaction and the joy that I thought it should give me, so I started to do something that, I was, uh, that wasn't a habit of mine. I prayed. I said, God, I, I'm not happy, and I don't have faith, and I'm open to you being that answer. I'm not going to fool myself into believing something just to feel better about it. I want it to be real. And I prayed that, and in short order, a guy with Campus Crusade came to my fraternity house, which that didn't happen very often, and he took me to lunch and shared the gospel with me. And it became clear to me that I was looking for my resume to do something that it could never do. I wanted it to deal with my sin problem. So I was justifying myself not through religious avenues, but through worldly success avenues. And then it became clear that Jesus, though, can deal with my sin issue because he being fully man and fully God tempted in every way as we are yet without sin was an appropriate substitute for me on the cross to receive the wrath of God that I deserved. This made sense. And, and I told this guy with Campus Crusade, yes, I want Jesus. And his ministry was in the toilet. And he looked at me and he said, wait, did you hear me correctly? <laughs> maybe, he was thinking, maybe I did this wrong. And he said, let, let, let me do this again. And he pulled out another tract, a different one, and went through it. And I was like, no, yes, this is what I want. And then my world began to change, not because of things that I had to be saved, not because of things I had to do to be saved, but because I had been saved. And now I had a whole new way that I desired to live. And I remember reading my Bible, and, and there, I, was, I was in Exodus. It, it had been a couple years later. And it hit me that Jesus didn't come to course correct God's failed plan for humankind. God had always had the design that he would save his people, and then we would obey. So Exodus chapter 20. What happens in Exodus chapter 20? Ten Commandments. It's kind of one of those chapters we should know. All right, so ex Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Law, are given to God's people. Was that before or after he saved his people from Egypt? After. All the way back in Exodus, we see that God's plan for his people is that he saves us and then asks us to obey because he knows that in our obedience, after we have already been saved there, we are going to find joy and satisfaction and grace and mercy and love. This has always been the plan of God. And I love the way the psalmist says this in Psalm 24. Who, has ascended, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, a pure heart that only Jesus can give. Jesus isn't anti-tradition. I've, I've heard some ridiculous sermons. Sorry, it's kind of harsh. I've heard some sermons a little off, uh, just, just about how tradition is, Jesus is anti-tradition. That's not what's going on here. Jesus affirms a whole lot of tradition, 
What he's doing, he's trying to free us from man-made tradition that adds to the Word of God, contradicts the Word of God, and heaps unnecessary burdens on us in the process. This is why Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you what? Rest. And some of you are here today, and you need to hear this. Christianity isn't a way of wearing ourselves out, trying to look like somebody on the outside to everyone else, constantly living in fear that somebody might actually see what's going on inside us or know what we're doing when nobody's looking. That's not Christianity. The church shouldn't be a moral or spiritual contest. In many ways, it should look more like AA. I have a number of friends who are actively involved in AA, and the common refrain that I hear from them is, I wish the church were more like this. Because they go in and they're not hiding their shortcomings. They go in and they introduce themselves. My name is so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic. It should be a very normal and sweet thing for me to walk in the church and say, my name is Jim Davis, I'm a sinner. Maybe that's how I'll start all my sermons from now on. <laughs> my name is Jim Davis and I am a sinner. But praise God, he has washed those sins away. He is redeeming me. And there is a sure hope in his kingdom for everyone who puts their faith in him. Our identity is that we are being saved. Our identity is not that we're proving our worth or trying to hide who we are. And when our identity is that we are being saved in Jesus Christ, the result is that we are more humble people, we are more accepting people, and we will not be scared for other brothers and sisters to see what's going on in our life. We don't have to hide it, we get to share it knowing that these things are not what qualify us to be in this church. Jesus did that. And then ironically, when our identity is in our redemption and on our works, our works get better. So I know a pastor, and I'll be finished soon, but I know a pastor in New York City who had a high school girl in his church and she had been accepted to AP English, and she was terrified. Like her, she couldn't sleep at night, she couldn't eat, her anxiety was off the charts because of the fear of this AP English class. And she went to her dad and said, I have to get out of this class, I can't handle it. He said, all right, I'll go with you, but you need to ask your teacher to get out of this class. And they went and they talked to the teacher, and the teacher said, sure, I'll let you out of this class, but what if I go ahead and give you an A? Go ahead and guarantee an A. Would you take my class then? She was like, well, sure, I'll take your class if I'm guaranteed an A. And as a result, she ended up getting the highest grade in the class because the fear of failure was removed. The guarantee of success was given to her, so that freed her up to enjoy the class and do much better than she ever would have otherwise and better than everybody else in the class because it was now by grace, not by works. And that's a perfect picture of what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. It is Jesus' desire that we stand before him with pure hearts, not just a clean exterior. So whether this is the, the first time that this makes sense or whether you have walked with Jesus for 50 years, the message is the same. There is great freedom in repenting of our damnable good works. The works like feeling more spiritually righteous than other person. The works of feeling more worldly, more righteous than other person, business accomplishments, how we raise our kids. We repent of those works as justifying means, and we rest in the grace of God offered to us freely in Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus wants his people to hear and to know.
that when we put our faith in him, we are bestowed with his righteousness. We aren't just let off the hook. We are made children, children, beloved children of the most high God. Not because we do something to earn our way there, but because he first loved us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this reminder for some, maybe news for others, that you just want our hearts. You you not only want them, you are working through your Holy Spirit to redeem them. And you've finished the ultimate work on the cross through Jesus Christ that we might never have to deal with your wrath. Let that sink in. Let that be sweet. Let that bring us rest in our souls and an excitement to honor you with our lives, not because we have to, but because you have given us a heart that wants to. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.